why don't we read some selections from Titus? Uh, some of you may have feared that I was going to read the totality of Titus, but don't worry, just some selected readings that I'll be referring to in this uh, course of this sermon. So from chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then down in verse 9, Speaking of elders, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Picking up in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, referring to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, uh, working at home, kind, and is submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, I urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Down to verse 12, training us, this is about the grace of God, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Moving on to chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect court courtesy toward all people. Verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Why don't we pray? Father, uh, we are strangers and aliens in this world because our citizenship is in heaven. Help us to understand and to believe your word so that we are filled with wisdom and understanding in order to bear good fruit while we live in this world, awaiting the redemption of our bodies and the renewal of the earth with the return of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So it's an election year, 
And I was earlier this year anticipating all kinds of, of uh, election chaos, and I never imagined all of the chaos that has come out. That isn't even tied to the election, but it all gets back to this main point of why I read a book I just finished reading yesterday. And that book is Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, uh, Why Do Good People Disagree About Politics and Religion? And... <clears throat> Even though he comes from a completely different worldview than me and us, uh, I find his book to be incredibly helpful, and uh, that will be part of the discussion when we have our next congregational conversation in uh, two Wednesdays from now. Um, but one of the things that he mentions is uh, a model by a guy by the name of Durkheim, whom probably you have never heard of him, because I imagine that I haven't heard of him. I don't remember. And so, anyway, but he comes, he has a model of religious psychology uh, that I think is helpful in understanding what happens within uh, a religious community such as ours. Uh, that there's three dynamics there is belonging, there is believing, and there is doing. Okay? And these interact with one another. It's not a one-way street. They're, they're all three-way streets between these things, and it sounds very much like a John Frame, triperspectival approach to things. And I think this is very helpful in understanding discipleship because discipleship really is about these three things. It's about um, believing, and because we believe we're part of, we belong to one another, and we also do certain things. Uh, we act in certain ways. Uh, there is a, a morality that is formed by our community, our belonging, as well as our um, activities and faith shape our community. So I find this helpful, this uh, idea of the interaction between them. And so this kind of gets to our uh, third conviction with regard to discipleship, and that asks, answers the question, how are disciples made? We're going to use uh, the Vine Project's four Ps from this particular chapter to clarify some of the, this particular question, and it's also reflective of what we see in Durkheim, I believe. As we think about how disciples are made, the first P is not what we might think it is, uh, nor is it any of the P's. It has nothing to do with programming. That is typically how people tend to think of discipleship in terms of programming. And it's really, programming is just how you accomplish the goals and those uh, how you accomplish that goal can differ completely between communities. And so that really is not what we're talking about. In fact, as we look at this letter from Paul to Titus, uh, remembering that Paul is the apostle, Titus is a church planter who's gone to the island of Crete to complete some of the work that Paul has begun. Paul never talks about programming. This is reflective, I believe, of what we see in The Trellis and the Vine. And for those of you who haven't heard of that particular book, uh, it's the one that the Vine Project sprung out of. Um, it, it communicates the idea, the, the main point of this book is that <clears throat> the life is in the vine. 
uh, that's what really matters. The trellis is necessary f- uh, for the growth of the vine, the direction of the vine, the health of the vine, but it really isn't what matters. It's the vine. You're not, you're not trying to have a really great-looking trellis. You're trying to have a healthy vine. And the trellis is really the programming. The main thing is the vine, the people who are being shaped into the likeness of Christ and have life. And so, it's not about programming. What is it about? Paul served, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul served for people. People who do or will believe. And so it gets back to that diagram that we've seen before, and we're going to keep seeing it through this whole process, this idea of the the redeemed people who have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and are now uh, around Jesus who is enthroned. It's about a people. Discipleship is uh, exclusively, in a sense, uh, about people rather than programming. Paul disciples people. It's, uh, discipleship is, I guess, people intense. Paul disciples Titus here with this letter. He talks about both the believing and the doing, but the emphasis is always on the people too. Because it's people who believe, it's people who do, and he's often talking about the people. And part of what Paul is wanting Titus to do, the part of the occasion for this letter, is that Titus would appoint elders into churches. And those are elders who are intended to give instruction to other peoples, but they have to first hold to the truth themselves. And so you're looking for people who belong, people who have made progress in believing, people who have made progress in doing, and therefore are able to help other people belong, believe, and do. And so the chain is intended to go on and on. Discipleship is how those people are formed into elders or lay leaders. Discipleship is how it happens. So it's intensely personal. People pass on the word of God. They pass on sound or healthy instruction to other people who then instruct yet others. From generation to generation to generation. That's how it's intended to happen. But it's not just officers. If we fast forward to chapter 2, uh, what we see is that Titus is, uh, Paul is telling Titus uh, some of the things, this is, not an ex- this is not an exhaustive list, it is not meant to be a, a, a uh, restrictive list, that, that these groups of people are only to be taught these things, but these are the, some of the special things that these groups are need, need to be taught in light of their circumstances. But he talks about people, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. He even includes bond servants or slaves. And so we recognize uh, that discipleship 
includes all of these people groups. It's all about people. All types of people are to be made into disciples, which means that all types of people are to be brought into relationship with Jesus Christ by faith in the truth of what Jesus has done. They're to be brought to faith about his death and his resurrection for our salvation. Uh, They're to be brought into the truth about his ascension and the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father right now as king. They are to be, to be brought into the knowledge that he has taken on, that the eternal son has taken on humanity, that he might live and die for our salvation. They're all to learn what this means. Because they believe and therefore belong, what is it they're supposed to do? People. All different kinds of people. They all belong to Christ. Last week we talked about the Great Commission and one of the functions, not the only function, of baptism, but one is public identification with Christ, a belonging to that people of God who are then subsequently being instructed by the church that they belong to. Paul continues later on in chapter 3, when he says, and let the people learn how to do certain things. And so making disciples is about people who are believing and doing. But that P, that first P is people. People who are disciples make disciples of other people. in the context of God's people. Meaning, it doesn't take place someplace out there, but it's meant to take place within the community. That it's intended to be a disciple-making community. Or one of the phrases that comes up, transformative community in this book. And I'm going to be hitting that again as time goes by, as we work our way through these convictions But again, people, and by that I mean community. Discipleship engages some people in instructing other people so that all the people are becoming like Jesus. And so disciples are made out of people, all kinds of people. So how do people make disciples of people? Well, Paul talks about this a lot in this particular letter. He talks about it in his introduction to the letter, saying that he served the elect, or he served these people for, specifically, their knowledge of the truth, and he does this by or through the preaching of the Scriptures. Which gets us to a second P, proclamation. We disciple people specifically by proclaiming God's word to people. We do this by proclaiming the doctrines that have been given to us in the scriptures. 
We do this by proclaiming the application of those doctrines to daily life. And so it's all about the believing and doing, but it's all centered in the proclamation of God's word. The necessity of God's word to this process. We see elements of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So it's, it's putting away the worldly thinking and putting, putting on godly thinking through the proclamation of the word. Why? So that we begin to do what God calls us to do. Paul continues. He talks about these elders giving instruction in sound doctrine. We are to believe and proclaim healthy doctrine to people. That's the idea between sound, uh, with the word sound there. Uh, That word sound actually is the one we get hygienic from. There's hygienic teaching, and there is unhygienic teaching. Hygienic is kind of one of those words that's been brought back thanks to COVID-19. It's all about the hygiene these days. There's so many public service announcements about the hygiene uh, that I want to lose my mind sometimes. And so, uh, you know, here I was at the airport on Friday, and I'm, I'm getting a lecture from the Southwest guy at the gate about good hygiene. It's like everywhere I go, it's good hygiene. I know how to wash my hands. I don't understand the people who don't, but I know how to wash my hands. Stop lecturing me about washing my hands. And so my eyes were rolling repeatedly, and I wished I had sunglasses, so he probably didn't know how badly my eyes were rolling about all of this. But soundness, health, essential to life, You don't have a godly person from unsound doctrine, which is part of what Paul is getting at here. Godliness is the goal. You don't achieve that. You don't attain that. You don't accomplish that with unhealthy, unsound doctrine. And so it's necessary to proclaim healthy doctrine to people. Okay, and that means... We're not talking about simply teaching principles to people, but doctrine. Who is God? What has Jesus done? Because all the principles in the world will not save you and change you unless they're connected to Christ and his work for sinners, the gospel. Unhealthy, unsound, or heterodox doctrine according to Paul, is to be rebuked and it is, be, it is to be corrected. And so there are times when there are disciples who have gotten the wrong book and they need to be corrected. There are times when false teachers try to come into the church and they need to be resisted and removed. But we need to preserve the soundness of doctrine. And think about it this way. Last week we talked about another word for disciple would be apprentice. 
If someone has wrong ideas about how to do things and they are your apprentice, you need to correct them. That is part of the process of discipleship. And I remember, you know, when I had other jobs, uh, there would be times, Steve, you're doing this the wrong way. They have to learn how to do it the right way. And that's a lot of what is going on in this passage. Okay? And so we see this emphasis in the proclamation. Not just the, the believing, but also the doing. 1 Timothy 4 is a, a parallel passage, and Paul tells Timothy, a similar person to Titus, because he too is a church planner who has been sent to do things, except not in Crete, but in Ephesus, practice these things. Immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself, or what you do, and the teaching, or doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so Timothy was to proclaim sound doctrine, but also to live soundly, godly fashion. We see it in Ephesians 4, that they're, they're told to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Instruction is to be given not just in what we believe, but in what we do, uh, so that the, the body grows. And it becomes what God has intended it to become, which is the body of Jesus himself. And so this means that everybody needs to learn to apply the gospel in the context of their circumstances and their daily life. So, we go back, in a sense, to John Frame. We have the doctrines, the sound doctrine, the unchanging doctrine. And then we have us, the people who believe these doctrines. But we also have the circumstances in life that determine how we apply those doctrines. So those all live in tension with one another so that we become increasingly godly and bearing great fruit in our particular circumstances. So back to chapter 2. We see older men and older women, younger men and younger women have different needs. Part of it is the newness of life because many of these people have come out of paganism and so there's certain things that are very different about how Christians act in their world because of our faith. And so they need to be instructed in these things in, in person-relative ways. Okay, Absolute truth. But each of us has different strengths and weaknesses, as well as different set of circumstances. And that truth has to be applied to that person and those circumstances. That's what's going on at the beginning of chapter 2 in Titus. Women 
in other words, in this passage, are also disciples that make disciples. And part of what's going on here is is pretty simple. Paul didn't want Titus to teach the younger women, in part because that might provide temptation, but also in part of he doesn't have personal experience in some of these things that they're to be instructed in. He can talk about some things from the scriptures, about what it says about being a wife. He can talk about uh, what it says about raising children, uh, but he hasn't done those things. And so it's helpful for older women to come alongside younger women. Intergenerational discipleship is assumed throughout the scriptures. This is one of those places where it's explicit, but it is assumed throughout the scriptures. And so they need to proclaim the truth one generation to the next in ways that uh, address the the real needs of people as they try to live for Christ and, and their set of circumstances. And so proclaiming really is sound doctrine that is applied to life. But here's the thing. Gotta remember how far I can move. Part of the when we're proclaiming the word, that reminds us or should remind us that we are not the authority. The authority is Jesus whose word it is. And so what we're really doing is not saying, this is how I do it, and you must do it too, but this is how Jesus tells us to do it, so let's figure it out together. That's what discipleship is. It's not making, my goal is not to make clones of Steve. I would pity you if you were just like me, and you had all of my weaknesses and all of my flaws and everything else. I'd feel bad for you. Because they'd probably be on top of all of yours, you see. But anyway, um, we are to make help people grow into, be restored in the image of Christ, not ourselves. So it's about the scriptures, and that is where Isaiah went. And Isaiah 8, which we heard from already this morning, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, which doesn't mean simply reciting the word, but also communicating in accordance with, in agreement with the word. Okay, uh, There are lots of pastors who might quote scripture, but they twist scripture. If they will not speak in accordance with this word, it is because they have no dawn or no light of day. They're in darkness. What did we talk about darkness earlier? We sang about it. We we did our uh, confession of faith. If they live in darkness, it's because they claim to have a relationship with God, but they never do anything he says. And they don't live in fellowship with God, and they don't live in fellowship with his people. They have no foundational relationship with Christ. Therefore, they have no foundational relationship with his people, 
and they walk in darkness. Again, from chapter 2 of Titus, we we have to remember that what what are we doing when we proclaim the word? Part of that is um, to help people renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That idea that we've talked about a couple weeks ago with regard to the mortification or the putting to death of sin. Helping people to turn away from the old way of life they had before Jesus found them and to begin to also live the new way of life that Jesus gives them. And so we also apply the word so that they live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The vivification or the bringing to life of virtue. That's similar to what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so as our mind is renewed, we we begin to put off and we're no longer conformed to this world, and we begin to be transformed and grow in godliness. That does not take place apart from the proclamation of the word. But this proclamation takes place in the itty-bitty places of life, not just the big places of life like a sermon. David Powelson talks about it this way, discipleship does the hard work of needing what is true into how we actually live. And so there's that picture of, of yeast and dough, and how the baker kind of needs it. Very, they must have strong hands. All the kneading, the rolling over the dough, trying to work the yeast as it grows so it spreads throughout the whole of the dough and not just stays in kind of one place. You've got this big lump of life over here. It's all dead over here. Okay, Kneading it, rolling it, working it in. And so discipleship really is taking the gospel as yeast, so to speak, and working it through the wholeness of the person. So that the gospel affects how they think about work, how they think about relationships, how they think about money, how they think about time, all of these things. Discipleship is hard work in that respect. As we think about this hard work, this some of these things that need to be worked into people, what is clear from this particular letter is the incredible need for self-control. Because he keeps going back to that word of self-control. He talks about it for the elders. He talks about it for the young men. He talks about it for the old men. He talks about it for the young women. Self-control is one of those things that's for everybody. And it is intended to be experienced and practiced by everybody. But there's another drumbeat that comes throughout this letter as well, and that is devotion to good works. Uh, Paul keeps going back there for Titus. And that it's not just about being self-controlled, but it's also being devoted to good works. Want to know what godliness looks like? Self-control, good works. And that is what we, through the proclamation of the truth, are trying to knead into the life of the body, the people of God. So disciples are made through proclaiming the word. Well, how do people 
make disciples besides proclaiming the word. That can't be the totality of it, right? This particular P from the book and uh, the chapter in the Vine Project isn't found in uh, the text of Titus. It's more assumed. Uh, it is in next week's text, which is Colossians. Um, but we have it in one of our par- parallel readings from this morning that Marty did. That's Acts chapter 2. And we see that they devoted themselves. This is the new Christians. Okay. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. And so we see the belonging aspect that's taking place. They belong to the fellowship. Uh, The breaking of bread is an expression of their belonging together, but it is something they also do. They also devote themselves to the proclamation of the apostles' teaching. There's the believing aspect. And so we see all of these dynamics that uh, Durkheim, can't remember his name, talked about. It's present right there if we have eyes to see in Acts chapter 2. And the P that is there in particular I want to pay attention to is prayer. It's not just proclamation to people, but it's also prayer for people with regard to the proclamation you've made. See, they're connected. It's, it's part of how that dough gets kneaded. You're praying the truth from their heads to their hearts. Uh, they would, that they would have eyes to see that these things are true and that they have a desire to do that which they believe. These new disciples devoted themselves to the word and prayer together. And so the word and prayer go together sort of like diet and exercise. Okay? I'm doing the exercise. I need to work on the diet part. I was getting breakfast uh, Friday, you know, in Las Vegas, and I'm looking at how many calories a simple combo chicken biscuit from uh, Popeye's was going to cost me. And I said, that's half my intake for a day. I'm in trouble. (laughs) I didn't have lunch. Diet and exercise. So just in a similar way, we need the proclamation and prayer. They're intended to go together to produce a godliness. If you only have one, you're not going to have godliness, just like I don't have the svelte body that I want. Prayer and proclamation. Prayer is important precisely because it, it expresses our dependence upon God to do this work by his spirit in order to accomplish his will. It's a, it's a saying that I can't do this. I can't make a disciple. I can proclaim the truth from them, but only you can transform them. That's, that's spiritual, natu- supernatural work. That's work of the spirit. It's not something that simply teaching can do. It goes beyond that. Teaching is necessary, but insufficient. So this reminds us that making disciples isn't a formula or a program. If you just go through the program, you'll exit a disciple. No, not really. 
It's not like putting money in a vending machine. There's far more that has to be done, and only God can do it. And so prayer engages Jesus to help us, to help one another, to become more like Jesus. And so disciples are made as we pray for people and their circumstances. That disciples are made as we pray that the the proclamation would take root in their lives and bear good fruit. So, as we think about how disciples are made, a follow-up kind of question is, how long does it take to make disciples? Chapter 3, verse 1 starts with, Remind them. This points to the need for perseverance as we proclaim and pray to and for people. Uh, This is one of the reasons why elders, as it said in chapter 1, are to be steadfast. And another word for that is persevering. They're to be people with patience because Well, people can be frustrating. (laughs) They don't always do what they're supposed to do. And part of that, most of that, is the reality of ongoing, uh, indwelling sin. We see that Peter also reminded the people of things. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you. How does that sound? I'm going to keep on reminding you. That's what I'm doing. Reminding you, reminding you. It sounds like nagging for most guys. Um, but it's reminding. This, not that something has to be done, it's a, but it's a reminding of what God has done and what that entails, how that plays out in our lives. I want to remind you of those qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Then later again in chapter 3, Uh, Verse 1, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember certain things. In this case, it's the predictions of the prophets with regard to the return of Jesus. But a lot of what proclamation is, is is persevering in reminding people of what they already know, but have kind of stopped putting in the forefront of their mind. They've let it slip to the back. So you're bringing it back to mind in the frontal lobe, so to speak. Because one of the greatest problems of Christians is that we deal with forgetfulness. We forget who we are, that spiritual amnesia that Sinclair Ferguson talks about often. But we also forget that we belong to a people Okay, that we're not just saved as individuals, but we're saved into this covenant community. And we also need to be reminded of particular doctrines and how they apply to the circumstances in life. We need to be reminded. So as I think about some of this, I realize that people often resist discipleship in part because they want to hide their faults and their weaknesses. Discipleship means you have to put those things on the table. It means you have to be willing to admit them and confess them and turn away from those things. 
And so some people don't want to be engaged in discipleship because they don't really want to face what's going on in the deep recesses of their heart. And and James talks about that in, in chapter 1 of his letter, that the law is like a mirror. It shows you who you really are. And the problem is with the people that he was writing to is that they looked and forgot they looked and they saw these blemishes, but then when they turned away from the mirror, they didn't see the blem because they didn't see the blemishes anymore. They forgot the blemishes were there. Some people also resist discipleship because they're quite content with who they are and don't necessarily recognize their need to grow in godliness. It's interesting to me. Professional athletes. Anyone ever aspire to being a professional athlete? Oh, yeah. Man, I, I, would, I would play and imagine in my front yard with baseball and then the, the driveway with basketball, and I was always, always trying to hit the game-winning shot. It often didn't go in, which is why I'm not a professional basketball player today. I, there you go. We might think that professionals don't need further instruction, but what do you have on every professional team? And if it's a if it's a individual sport like tennis, what what do they still have? Coaches. Serena Williams has a coach. Okay? LeBron James has coaches. And those coaches continue to tell these professional athletes, now think about this, those coaches are not nearly as good at this thing as those people are, and yet they're telling them what they're doing wrong and how to do it right. Even the, you know, when we think about uh, Gladwell and talking about how to achieve excellence and the the 10,000 hours of of practice that are poured into these, these are the people who have put the 10,000 and more hours in. They have mastered this sport, and yet there is someone who is telling them, wait a minute, this bad habit has crept into your game. We need to adjust this. You need to do that. None of us is beyond that. All of us are in need of discipleship, apprenticeship, that comes along and says, this is where you're going off. Let's see if we can work on that so you get it right. People don't learn everything immediately. Did anyone master algebra in a weekend? Probably not. And even if you mastered it, so you think... If you don't do it for a couple of years, do you think you still remember it all? No. People don't learn everything immediately. They don't learn it perfectly. And that is why Jesus helps us persevere in the proclamation, to persevere in the praying, to persevere with his people in all of this. And so making disciples requires perseverance or persevering. And so, brothers and sisters, Christianity isn't just about believing. It is about believing, but not just about believing. It's all about doing and also belonging to Christ, as well as one another. Discipleship begins with bringing people to faith so that they belong, 
and then forming their beliefs and actions that reflect what belongs to the Scripture and living in community together. We, we can't reduce discipleship to just one of these things. But all three. Making disciples needs to reflect these interrelationships and, I believe, is expressed in the four Ps of people, proclamation, prayer, and perseverance. As God's redeemed people, let us help one another believe and do all that he commands us. So if we're to wrap this together in one little thread, disciples are made by perseverance in prayer and proclaiming Christ to people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, well, Paul writing to Titus, and that we can listen in, and we can catch some of these big themes that are there within this letter, and realize that it's about these four things, in large part. And that discipleship, therefore, is really about these four things. Father, help us to grow in these four things. We can't do it alone. We are insufficient to the task. We're, we're crippled by sin in our blind spots. And we desperately need you to help us to see more clearly, to speak more clearly, to, to put into practice more clearly. And so help us in this great endeavor of making disciples to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.